Now, The Sipping Point with Lori Forster, the wine coach, certified sommelier, corporate entertainer, and wife to a world-class chef, Lori is literally pouring the fun back into wine. Meet some of the most interesting people in the world of food, wine, and spirits as she uncorks the recipe for a delicious life. All right, this is Lori Forster, and you're listening to The Sipping Point. I'm so excited because today's show is fascinating. I can't uh, even have imagined we could cover this topic. Topic, But Hobie Wedler is a blind graduate student, and he's actually right here in studio with me. He's a student at the Uni- University of California, Davis. You're a founder of the nationally recognized chemistry camp, for the blind, and you've made this amazing connection with Francis Ford Coppola and started a thing called Tasting in the Dark. Now, I bet there's a lot of people out there tasting in the dark, but it has nothing to do with what you've come up with, <laughs> because in the wine industry, we talk about blind tasting, uh, tasting wines without knowing their identities, but you're really taking this to the next level because of your experience and how you've been raised. Your knowledge of chemistry, along with your knowledge of you know, a being visually impaired for your whole life. You brought this together with your love of wine to create something I don't think I've ever heard of before. Welcome to the show, Hobie. Lori, thank you very much. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, love Maryland. Love your guys' wine culture. And I really am, am pleased to be here in the studio talking about wine, talking about my true passion. I love it. And, you know, I hate to even introduce you to say you're a blind graduate student, because when I read your background, um, you're going for your Ph.D. right now in chemistry. And you've been touted as one of the, uh, I would say, master tasters or sensory perception out there in the wine world from some of these really high ups out at Francis Ford Coppola and other wineries. So you've you got more than lots of people who have all of their senses, I guess. I don't know about that. I just what I know is they're far too kind and I love what I do. I love putting my passion and my love of wine first and uh, really pairing it with my love of chemistry. That's sort of my dream and, and why I'm so excited to be in this industry. I love it. So tell me, okay, how did this all come about? So I was born and raised uh, near wine country in Petaluma, California, a small town in the southern part of Sonoma County. You might know it for the Petaluma Gap, which produces oh, yeah. very good pinots and shards. Um, and I was I was really excited about local community aspects when I was growing up. I don't really know why. My parents enjoyed wine. But I really enjoyed the fact that the fruit to make excellent wine was being grown all around me Mm. and how these fruits could be then turned into wine that was shipped all over the world. And I think I was about 10 years old when I heard that Sonoma County wine was some of the most prestigious wine in Europe and Asia and Central and South America. And they really loved what we did. It just made me so excited that fruit that was being grown in my backyard was being enjoyed around the world. And I went on my first winery tour when I was about 12 years old and fell in love with just the aroma and the experience of making wine. And honestly, not only the science, but the art of wine. Oh, I love that. What's captured me over the past few years is this sort of melding and the seam between the artfulness of wine and the science of wine. 
Mm. Isn't that it's a big debate in the industry, I think. I mean, of course, there is science to it, but people have been making wine since before we had all these scientific gauges and techniques and additives. Right. So there has to be some art to it. Wine, to me, is about 50% art and 50% science, and the science never has changed, even though now we know what's happening. The Mm. science has always been there. But the artistic side of wine is really taking something and blending it and mixing it together to form something even better. You know, a story that I love about Francis Ford Coppola uh, is actually that he fell in love with art, not through the film industry, but far before that, actually when he made wine with his uncle, in their basement of their New York apartment. And what he (laughs) learned there, as far as I understand it, is the beauty and sort of mesmerizing quality of blending. How you can take one grape that is excellent and another grape that's just as good and blend them with just the right ratio and get something that's even better than the first two previous items. Oh, I love that. It's kind of like artists blending different paint colors, I guess. It's the same thing. And wine, what I love about wine is... You know, so much of art that we appreciate is visual uh, paintings, uh, whether you're looking at a sculpture, whether you're looking at a beautiful statue or a drawing, whatever it may be. A lot of the art that we consider in the world is visual and wine is genuinely my art that is non-visual. It's a way that Mm -hmm. I can really get a sense of the artist, a sense of the person that crafted it and put it together without being able to see a thing. Wow. And do you count food in that? As I absolutely well. do. So I'm a I'm an amateur chef myself. Ah. Do a lot of cooking, and uh, one of my biggest passions is to pair food with wine and think about the best way to sort of fix a meal and make wine a course of that meal. Oh, you know what? We are soulmates. Well, I because- love that. <laughs> Because my husband is a chef, I'm married to a chef, and we we believe that wine is part of the recipe of your meal. It uh, always is, whether it's in right? your glass when you're cooking it, or in the food <laughs> itself, true. or just a, a thought, a brilliant thought of how to pair food with wine. And if you do it right, the wine tastes better, and the food tastes better, it does. And, and just like a chemical reaction, it's something <laughs> more than it was before. It is. You turn yeah. two things that are totally different into one cool sort of seamless product. Love that. So how did you start? I mean, yesterday, last night, I should say, you were doing this tasting in the dark at Maggiano's uh, in the area. How did you start doing it? And it's not just in the dark. You don't know what's in in your glass. You truly are in the dark. You cannot see, right? So we blindfold people. We actually, at Maggiano's last night, we blindfolded everyone outside the tasting room Uh, had the wines pre-poured, and then walked them into the room where we would be tasting wine and went through a sensory experience, first of talking about wine as an art and really getting people to connect with wine in that that regard as an art form. Mm. And we allow people to introduce themselves, and that's really powerful because people are allowed to talk, basically, to me in a room where there are many people, but with the blindfold on, we can create the illusion that they're alone. And Love people it. tend to temporarily forget that, yes, there are a lot of people around me. But it's also a great way for people around a table to get to know each other. I love that. And you know what? Uh, just the the wine plus the blindfold mm-hmm. must be very freeing. It is freeing. Some people find it a little bit intimidating until we start talking, and then they usually really calm down into it. That was the case at Maggiano's last night anyway. One of, the other, one of the other exciting parts of the tasting for me is before we start tasting and talking about wine, 
we go through many aroma compounds and we have people smell compounds that would be found in wine at a much higher concentration. So, for instance, if I wanted people not to give any of the tastings away, if you want to come out to California or have me back to Maryland, uh, not to give any of the tastings away, but if I were to have a peach aroma, I would take a peach, a fresh peach, and actually blend it in with a little bit of a base white wine. But then people would be smelling that peach aroma and trying to identify it without their sight as peach. Mm. So... When, when we smell and taste wine, which is the, the latter part of the tasting, and we'll do that in a few minutes here, Yeah, we need to use our noses and our ability to identify aromas to talk through them and to talk about wines. Right. And a lot of people find that intimidating to say, oh, you know, what do I smell there? Do I smell cherry? Well, the power of suggestion is very strong. So if we can prime people's noses mm. and get them affiliated with those aromas beforehand, right. it truly enhances the experience at large. Okay. Well, you know what? You mentioned we're going to try a little of this, and we're going to do that right after the break. So we'll be right back with Hobie Wedler on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach with The Sipping Point, and we're back with Hobie Wedler, who's doing events all over the country called Tasting in the Dark, along with Francis Ford Coppola Wines. And literally, you're tasting wine without the ability to see. And Hobie, I was telling you at the break when I do my wine comedy shows called Something to Wine About, <laughs> one of the fun games we play is called Smell This. And I get people to come up, uh, volunteers, they blindfold, and then I put a number of actually very silly things under their yep. nose to smell. But it just goes to show the audience how, you know, it really without your sight, it's difficult. The difference between an orange and a tangerine, it, it takes a lot of training to be able to really make that distinction. What I find with aroma that's so exciting to me is that it really is another language. It's another way of acquiring information, which is how we acquire information by speaking English. Mm -hmm. Our ears allow us to do that. Our eyes allow us to do that. Well, our noses are nothing short of that. And when we smell things, we don't often identify them. For instance, if I were to give you a picture of a dog, you would say, well, yeah, that's the furry thing that goes woof. I know what that is. If I were to show you a black mission fig, you'd say, well, that's a fig. Come on, where are you going with this? But if I were to crush a fig up in a glass of wine and say, what is the aroma you're getting here? A lot of people, just like you were saying, wouldn't be able to say fig. And one magical thing about wine and the reason we need to do these blind aroma experiences is because you can't look at a wine and have it tell you, I smell like a blackberry, right? Yeah. Everyone is blind when talking about wine. Well, speaking of that, I'm actually blindfolded right now, so we're, you're going to put me to the test. All right. Uh, I'm not sure I can live up to to your abilities here, but... Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if gonna, I have any of them, so... <laughs> what are we going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to taste through three wines, three of my very favorite wines, okay. uh, all available here in Maryland from Francis Ford Coppola Winery up in Geyserville, California in Sonoma okay. County. So I'd like you to go ahead and reach out in front of you. You so, will find three glasses slightly to your left... And you're going to go for the leftmost glass. Have you found it? Do I have the right one, everybody? <laughs> oh, we're getting to the right oh, one. Oh, right. Okay. Duh. Okay. Other left. Yep. This one. And what we're going to do is we're going to swirl them on the table without smelling them first. Okay. And while you do this, I want you to just take a very deep breath of air through your nose and exhale through your mouth. And this is sort of a breathing exercise that really gets your palate sort of in mind aligned, I think. Even swirling my wine without my sight, I'm having a hard time with. And right, We're going to bring it know. up to our nose now, and we're going to take a smell of it. Whoop. 
So tell me what you're smelling in this wine. What do you think, just in terms of aroma, what do you get here? Uh, I feel like some earthy, maybe some toasty mm-hmm. smokiness. That's very good. I get a lot of fruit as well, a lot of very dark berries, um, a little bit of sort of black currant. Yep. Definitely a lot of sort of very ripe peach, very ripe plum, and almost a little bit of blueberry. Let's go ahead yes. and taste. Wow. How does that feel going on your palate from from front to back? Um, medium bodied. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm thinking of my wine yep. tasting process good. here. Uh, yeah, a good balance of a little bit of acidity there. Mm-hmm. The tannins very smooth. It's yeah, not tannins. A, a, not astringent. A very <clears throat> easy drinking. So I like to divide the palate into three regions, which is really the front region being right when you're right when the wine hits your teeth, right at your hard palate. The mid palate being right where your hard and soft palate come together. And the back palate being sort of what I call the point of no return just before you're about to swallow a sip of wine. <laughs> and here I get I get distinctive flavors on each region. So in the front, if you take another sip while I'm talking here, mm-hmm. in the front palate, I get a lot of that that sort of slight acid, a little bit of those right. berry flavors. Yes, As it I moves back that. into the mid palate, you get those nice, bold sort of stone fruit and uh, overripe plum flavors. And at the very back of my palate, I get a lot of... Uh, spices, a little bit of clove, a little bit mm-hmm. of star anise. Again, that black cassis that I we were talking it. about. So what varietal do you think this might be? I want to say maybe a Merlot. There's definitely some Merlot in there. That's very good. Yeah. So this is actually our Claret, our 2013 ah. Claret, which is a blend of all five Bordeaux varietals from okay. uh, some of our premier vineyard sites around California. Nice. This one was actually started by Gustav Niebaum, in the 1860s, who owned the cha- who started the chateau uh, that Francis first purchased uh, up in Rutherford, California. So Francis loved and believed in the claret and wanted to recreate the wine yes. that Gustav Niebaum made from his property. Let's go on to wine number two. Sure, I got it. This I think is, I got uh, the right one, right, guys? This is a much more the ones that you can see. <laughs> exactly. Do I have the right wine? <laughs> this right. is a much more pure varietal here. Uh, so let's go ahead and smell this. A little bit different than the than the first wine. Oh yeah. What do you think? More intense on the black fruits. Yep, exactly. But still, some of that uh, evidence of I think some oak. For me, definitely some oak, but mm-hmm. but a lot of black cherry Cedar. here. Mm-hmm. Black cherry. So a lot of that that nice sort of creme. Yeah. Cherry it's creme. Really, as you swirl it, it's coming out. Yep. Let's taste it. Yep. Watch all the listeners listen to us slurp our wine. I don't know. I know. And we're getting, uh, this is so fascinating. And we're going to keep doing this even at the break, but we're getting close to our time. Um, wow, this is so good. So that was our, uh, the, by the way, the mouthfeel for that for me is a lot more rich tannins. Absolutely. And it's one of my one of my all-time favorites. It's our Director's Cut 2013 Cabernet Sauvignon. Nice. So this wine comes from all of Sonoma County. And uh, that all of our directors cut fruit comes from Sonoma County. This is from Alexander Valley. So one of the most premier regions for growing uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in Sonoma County. And we're really in the state of California. So Hobie, if folks, because this is fascinating, we could do hours on this. If folks (laughs) want to connect with you more, find out more about Tastings in the Dark, where can they go? The best place to go is our website, which is FrancisFordCoppolaWinery.com. Uh, my email address should be up there, and I'm more than happy to uh, be contacted by by folks that are interested. I love coaching on wine, just like you do, and Perfect. it's 
what a pleasure it's been to be here in Maryland with you. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you so much, Hobie. This has been amazing. All right. We'll be right back. This is Lori Forrester and The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach with The Sipping Point, and I'm so excited because this is one of my wine sandwich of the weeks. We actually have a chef in studio. Not only are we tasting wine, but today we're going to talk a little bit about a great cookbook with Chef John Shields. He had his own public television show, which I'm sure you've seen, many successful cookbooks, but one called Chesapeake Bay Cooking that was kind of a breakthrough at the time, and now he's doing his 25th anniversary edition, which includes libations, and I love that. Um, He has Gertrude's at the Baltimore Museum of Art for now over 17 years. I'm sure many of you have already eaten there and met John before, and he's just sitting here with such a lovely smile. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. So you were like the... One of the first to really highlight the Chesapeake Bay and recipes and cooking of the real people that lived along the Chesapeake Bay. Am I right? I guess that's how it happened. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't expecting it. It was just I missed the food that I grew up with. I was in California at the time. So I thought, well, if I can't get it, I'll just going to cook it. Right. Okay. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. You told me you've been a chef for 43 years. Is that right? Yes. Uh Wow. That's, That's commitment. That it's is commitment. commitment. Or insanity. Or insanity, uh, yes. that's right. Uh-huh. So you uh, you grew up in this area between the Baltimore area and the eastern shore of Maryland, which is where I live, so yeah, I love nice, that. Nice spot. It is, but at some point you made your way out to Berkeley, California, where there was a thriving food scene, an amazing place to be at the time. Um, what brought you there, and, and uh, what were you doing? Well, you know, this was the, um, the end of the 60s, the early 70s, and so I think I went on vacation, and... And I just ended up there for 20 years. You know, these <laughs> things happened. You know, you, you just weren't quite sure what it happened. It was such a free time, wasn't it? It really was. And But it was an amazing time to be there because so much was going on around food. Uh, they actually called it the time of the new American food revolution. Oh, wow. And they even referred to Berkeley as the gourmet ghetto. Oh, nice. And who you, knew? Ha- you had so many, you know, young people who were out of college, but many of them. Ha- whom had traveled to Europe mm. and were passionate about food and that kind of sense of toi, you know, of of the regionality of food. I love and that. so when we were in so we were in California, you know, we were working with people like, you know, Alice Waters and, and Bruce Adels, all these people that were in Berkeley, but highlighting American food and, and, and the wonders of it. So anyway, we got to meet all of our farmers and mm. it, we had that had kind of fallen out of the wayside here, you know. Know what right, I mean? exactly. And um, and talk about wine. I mean, we were in Wine Central. You were there. in Kermit Lynch country. Oh who's my a god! Big, uh, you know, idol of mine, and yeah. he really brought to America some of the great smaller vineyards and smaller known regions in Europe. Previous to that, all you could get was Burgundy or Bordeaux. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so he, no, he was Wow, a that was a great place to be. But you but you miss the uh, the seafood of the Chesapeake Bay. And so this cookbook was really for you to get a taste of home. And I guess now for anybody else to get a taste of home. Tell me how you went about putting together the recipes in this book, because you just didn't make them up yourself. No, right? no. Now, people always say, I made your crab cake or I made your 
Imperator, Imperior. No, they didn't make that. They made it from the people in the book. Um, when I came back to do the um, the cookbook, I kind of took a sabbatical from, from my restaurant in California for about nine months. And I traveled in a Volkswagen um, bug up and down nice. the eastern shore. And I had a friend who actually was a, um, a agriculture inspector for the state. And he introduced me to all these people over there. Oh, nice. And so they would take me into the, you know, uh, a church hall or they would take me in where the uh, watermen were working and we would sit and just visit. And it was, you know, it was such an honor because these people would bring out these recipe boxes that had come from their grandparents or great grandparents and they were all yellowed and, and falling apart and they would tell stories and often they'd bring out photo albums wow. to go with it. And, you know, it was such an intimate kind of thing to hear these stories. And as I continued the trip, I thought, you know, this is more than a cookbook. Right. This this is telling the tale of our region and our heritage. And that's that's kind of what it, you know, it became because it was actually it was the first nationally published uh, book on the Chesapeake Bay. Oh, wow. And is this what really brought you to doing your TV show on PBS? It did, you know, because again, while I was talking to these people, I thought, my God, I'd love to be able to capture this in a bigger way. And um, Maryland Public Television had said, hey, let's let's think about this. Right. It took us for a few years, you know, in development because I was still in California. Right. And uh, finally, we, we put it together and uh, we got out on the road and were able to capture this way of life. It's, I think, uniquely Chesapeake. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love the book. I'm looking at it right now. You can uh, check out John's website, GertrudesBaltimore.com and find out more about getting the 25th anniversary book. Um, but maybe before we take a break, we should taste one of your libations that's included in the new chapter in the book. And for those of you who don't like fancy words, that's drinks, okay? <laughs> Cocktails. Which of these two are we going to taste first? Well, I guess, uh, how about the Black-Eyed Susan? All right. Um, it, it's it's kind of a newfangled version of an old, um, you know, drink, an okay. old drink. Um, and it's made with pineapple juice, vodka, rum, and uh, th- you're muddling some blackberries. Okay, and, and, yeah. I'll uh, take a picture of yeah. these two. We'll have to take a picture because it's so beautiful. So you've got the mud. Muddled berries. You have elderflower liqueur. Uh Beautiful. Some OJ and um, a sour mix. Nice. I love it. And then, of course, everyone knows this drink, and this has to do with Pimlico, right? It's where people are usually drinking a lot of this, but a different style. It's a different style because, as I said, you know, in in the old days, uh, they made it much more, you know, a pineapple juice-based thing. Right. This um, is delicious. Yeah. Doesn't even taste like there's any liquor in there. It reminds you of a... More of a cordial, you know? Right. It's just a nice, yeah, very refreshing. I love that. All right. We're going to take a quick break on The Sipping Point. We're going to be back with Chef John Shields. We're talking about his 25th anniversary edition of the Chesapeake Bay Cookbook. Cooking Cookbook. That's a mouthful. We'll be right back on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach. We're back with the sipping point and in studio with me is Chef John Shields. He wrote a, a groundbreaking book, Chesapeake Bay Cooking. It's a cookbook, but he didn't just whip up all these recipes in the kitchen. He also got a lot of these recipes from meeting with people along the Chesapeake Bay, these family recipes, community recipes of watermen, of people around the water. Um, and now 
you're in your 25th year of this book and you're re-releasing it with some new things, including cocktails. We just had your Black Eyed Susan, uh, your version of it. It's it's really delicious. (laughs) I have to sip it slowly here on a Saturday morning. But (laughs) welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so we were talking at the break uh, about the fact that your your PBS show is now airing still right now on Saturdays today. So how can people give a watch to that? Well, they hauled it out of the closet, dusted it (laughs) off a little bit, and they thought it'd be a nice thing to do, you know, in conjunction with the 25th anniversary edition of Chesapeake. So it's airing on uh, Saturday afternoon. I don't know the exact time. Okay. um, So later, later this afternoon, it'll be on. Go to your guide on MPT. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, so not only are you passionate about the food of the Chesapeake Bay, but we certainly wouldn't have a lot of this great cooking because it's it can be seafood based without, you know, the wonderful things that the Chesapeake Bay brings to us. So you're very active in the community and causes uh, around protecting and revitalizing the bay. Tell me a little bit about how that looks for you. Well, it's really important. I mean, it's very important for all of us to kind of look at the bigger picture of where are we with the bay? Uh, what's the health? Um, what can we? What are we still pulling out of there? Mm-hmm. Where we have problems and where good news is is around the corner. So um, there's a lot of organizations, as you probably know. You know, Chesapeake right. Bay Foundation, Chesapeake Bay Trust. Um, we just started working with the National Aquarium. They're doing a, a fantastic sustainable seafood program where. Um, they're working with watermen to kind of get them on board, uh, so to speak, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, looking at populations of fish that need to be carefully monitored and how that fish is actually being caught. Is it being done in a sustainable way that keeps ah. those populations gone? So. Uh, Again, as I said, there's some bad news because some of the populations are down. But then we have all the great news with the people doing the um, oyster farming. Right. I mean, we have oyster farms all over the place now. And it seems like every couple months we have some new ones going on. And I really think that's going to be one of the major growth industries on the Chesapeake. And I think also sometimes when we give some of the other populations a little bit of a rest, we kind of give them a break, gives right. them a chance to rebound. Mm. Um, and I think that's going to be, you know, an important thing. What's your favorite oyster recipe that's in this book that includes oysters? Oh, that now that's a hard one. There's, I guess, there's two of them that come to mind. Um, one of them is a barbecued oyster, and, and I generally like to do that with um, one that uh, has a little bit of brininess um, to it. And uh, we kind of make a citrus barbecue sauce on it and uh, use a, a local country bacon uh, on top. Anything with bacon. And so that, you know, that kind of <laughs> comes comes out nice. And the other one is just, I love a fried oyster. I love a good fried oyster. and it's With inter- champagne. With champagne. Love that. But it's interesting, you know, in the old days, if you would talk about a fried oyster, what that actually meant was an oyster fritter. It meant a lot of oysters in pancake batter. Then they would take them and fry them. That was a fried oyster. Mm. Then to distinguish it, they called them single fried, and it started in Virginia. So I I have a recipe from some people down there. It's a chinkatigue single fried oyster, and um, they're just delicious. I mean, you can eat them like peanuts. Uh, I could. I know I could. So good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to be trying to make that myself then. Okay. So you have the new cocktail section, and we're talking about that. I had your black-eyed Susan. Tell me about this Bloody Mary looking thing that I have here. Well, it's a a thing called... 
called a dirty gertie. Ooh. Now, don't tell my grandmother. I mean, she's looking down on me, but I, I don't know if this would offend her. But it, I tell you, people really, really like this. I uh, love it. Thing. I and, love it. Was she uh, fun-loving like Betty White? Did she have the, that kind of edgy sense of humor? Well, she actually did. Yeah, yeah. she so, did. Okay, I think she she might I, like the dirty I think, gertie. I think she could get off on the <laughs> on the on the dirty gertie. So it's really something that's just you know fun. It's it's a play on the Bloody Mary. Um, and what we do is take uh, you know things that you would imagine Worcestershire, Tabasco. We use some fresh horseradish in it, Love and it. then we blend it with clam juice and the tomato juice. So it's kind so of like, like a clamato, kind of like that, yep. and has a little bit of old bay in it. And it's always served with. With a um, steamed shrimp. You I know, know I'm going to take a picture of this so everybody can see how beautiful it is. But I'm sure even more beautiful at your restaurant. Oh, absolutely. You get a, <laughs> get a little more fluff on it there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Some Bloody Marys, is, I just saw one. I forget where I was traveling all along the way, but they have a cheeseburger on top of it. A mini cheeseburger slider on a stick in oh the Bloody God. Mary. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've seen it all now. Well, nothing but wrong with that I, either, I'll go huh? with the shrimp. I yeah. think this is a better idea. <laughs> so if folks want to get your 25th edition, I'm assuming, can they get them signed? Sure, yeah. They can They can go on uh, Gertrude's website, gertrudesbaltimore.com, and request it to be That's signed. That's great. Um, or, or come into the restaurant. Come in the restaurant. I'm glad to sign it. I mean, are you there on a daily basis? I am, just except Wednesdays. I take my Wednesdays wow, off. Wow, that's awesome. A lot, you know, a lot of celebrity chefs like you, they don't actually even go to their restaurants anymore. Well, I only have one, so I better <laughs> go, huh? <laughs> you better go. I love it. I love it. Okay, I'm going to take a little sip here of your dirty gertie. I love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. I'm a Clamato fan. I did the first time up in Canada. Really? That's how they do. They call them Bloody Caesars. Uh-huh. I don't know if anybody is. Instead of uh, Bloody Mary, it's a Bloody Caesar, and they use Clamato. Nice. But I guess it's an East Coast thing, Clamato, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I love that. You're so much fun. You have <laughs> to come back, Chef John Shields, uh, of the Chesapeake Bay Cooking Cookbook, and of course, of Gertrude's Restaurant. You've been just a delight to be with. I hope uh, you'll come back and see us on The Sipping Point again. I've had a great time, Laura. I'll be glad. Glad to come back. All right, cheers. Thanks. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach with the Sipping Point. Wow. I love Chef John Shields. I live like three blocks from that I'm place. I'm double fisting these two cocktails. They're delicious. The second one was mine. I know. Both good. The Dirty Gertie, if you like Bloody Marys, mm-hmm. and the Black Eyed Susan, is it, it's very different than a traditional Black Eyed Susan, but delicious. Yeah. All those are in the 25th anniversary edition of Chesapeake Bay Cooking, uh, penned by Chef John Shields. You can go to GertrudesBaltimore.com and check out his restaurant, check out his book, all that good stuff. But if you want to come out and have cocktails with me, guess what, Spam? Yeah? You can do it. Now, I don't know if you remember, I've been doing this Wine, Women, and Barbecue series with mm-hmm. Famous Daves. It's been going amazing. The mm-hmm. ladies and I have been having such a good time. But the guys have been complaining that they couldn't participate. So, in honor of football season, we're doing Wine, Women, and Barbecue Tailgate Edition Nice at Famous Dave's in Bel Air, Maryland. You can go to thewinecoach.com slash women. All the information is there. But yes, guys, you are allowed. You can come out wine with me with great barbecue. We're going to be featuring some different menu items they have that are great things you can make for tailgaters, for football parties, and I'm going to be showing you my favorite, very affordable, but still delicious wines that pair with things like nachos and wings and pork sliders and perfect yeah st louis ribs Mm. yeah 
I know. It's delicious. Everybody thinks you have to do beer for football or tailgate parties, but wine can be such a great partner for any of those foods. You just have to think about what you have in the food and what you need in the wine to match. And we're going to be doing a little of my perfect pairings uh, education at the session and just having a whole lot of fun. So you don't have to bring your man, but you can bring your man. Or, hey, guys, come as, you know, just your bros. Bring your bromance. <laughs> they'll, 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 they'll take it. Exactly. There's meat. <laughs> There's meat. Um, it's four courses, only thirty two ninety nine. That includes tax, tip, wine, food, everything. Where are you going for a four-course meal for that? And it's delicious. This is my third one. And uh, if you want to join us, you can go to thewinecoach.com slash women. It's October 21st, October 21st at 6 p.m. in Bel Air, Maryland. Okay. I want you guys to join me next week. Of course, we'll be back for the recipe for a delicious life. And if you want to check out anything about the show, go to thewinecoach.com.